David, in a Fox Business interview this morning, Donald Trump threatened to withhold funding from the post office. What I want to know is if the post office were to wither and die, what would you most miss about it? Oh my God. Um, I don't. Can I answer first? Yeah, you wanted you go first. Yeah, it's like when you get to the front of the line and you know you've you've paid to mail your package, mm-hmm. and the person says, "Do you want any stamps with that?" Yeah, I, I can't tell you as as a kind of minor league stamp collector how happy I am to say I already got some last time I was here. <laughs> There's a certain bravado. You, in you're that. the only person who doesn't work in like a mail room who's just like, "No, I have plenty of stamps." <laughs> <laughs> I have kids, right? I got, already, I got the Hot Wheels stamps last time. I don't need any extras. You're the you're you're helping keep them afloat. You're the, without you without people like you, we'd be in a much more dire situation than the dire the the in, incredibly dire one we're in right now. I'm also gonna miss arguing with the person at the post office about what can go in media mail. Like if my <laughs> book can go in media mail, why can't this old copy of the New Yorker go in media mail? Oh, it has ads in it, does it? You want to make a law against me? Well, I'm starting to think this Donald Trump really has a point. <laughs> I'm hard to believe in, in what the president's saying about the nefariousness of the post office. It's time for the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Did we have enough news this week, David? Jiminy Christmas. We got a lot to cover today. We'll answer your listener mail, including the question, why does every celebrity who gets written about by the media have a, quote, great sense of humor? Plus, the Ringer's own Roger Sherman comes on to talk about two college football conferences' decision to cancel their sport this fall and the truly amazing days that that produced on college football Twitter. All that plus David guesses a strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, the big news is that Joe Biden, Democratic nominee for president, has picked a running mate. It is Kamala Harris. And as many people noted, we had a dumb, wacky week on political Twitter that ended with the most logical conclusion possible. And I've I've got the metaphor for you here. This is from a tweet from Strangest Days. Biden was, quote, like your dad at his favorite diner when he pretends to look at the menu and then gets the thing he's ordered 5,000 times in a row. (laughs) Yeah. Can you top that? I think that's pretty great, right? couple of notes on the few days of the media chasing the scoop, which, by the way, when it comes to the vice presidential nominee, is really a non-scoop. It's like the NBA transaction story where we're going to know what the trade is in five minutes anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. But as Mike Allen of Axios noted, the political media found out the nominee was Harris when Biden sent out a text at 4.14 p.m. The decision did not leak, which is kind of amazing because I always thought of Biden during the primary as a really leaky campaign. Sure. They seemed like they were constantly talking to the press, but we did not know. Everybody found out at the same time. So without the leak, the Kamala Harris reporting became like a college football coaching search on Twitter. Did you see people that were studying the flight tracking software to see who was flying in and out of Wilmington, Delaware this week? (laughs) It was actually a plane from South Bend, Indiana. And someone said, oh my gosh, now Pete Buttigieg is not going to be the Veep, 
but perhaps Biden is going to announce his entire cabinet this week. <laughs> well, it turns out Biden did not announce his cabinet and Pete Buttigieg was not on the plane that flew from <laughs> South Bend. So that was a strikeout. Another great bit of detective work. Before announcing Harris, Biden released next week's Democratic Convention speaker schedule. Now, would you guess that some people looked at this schedule and drew way too many inferences from who was on it and who wasn't? Because it turns out Harris was on the schedule, but Susan Rice wasn't. Oh, right. Which you could read both ways. But uh, I mean, I'm assuming a lot of people read it as if that meant that Susan Rice was the nominee. <laughs> there was a there was a very prominent uh, liberal Twitter member who went there. And I loved one of the replies was, it's the Democratic National Convention, not a game of Clue. <laughs> Beyond the work of Twitter's Baker Street Irregulars, we had the kind of micro scoop. One was a stage has been set up at a hotel in Wilmington. <laughs> we didn't know who the nominee was, but we knew a stage had been set up. Mm. On Tuesday, CNN reported Joe Biden has selected his running mate. Not who he had selected, but that he had made a decision. <laughs> In the NBA, this would be like Woj saying a trade has just happened in the NBA. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The Suns have decided who they're going to take with the number one pick. Kevin Durant has selected a team, but he didn't yeah. tell you what team it is. Uh, basically breaking something is happening. The New York Times put it this way. Biden's VP pick is said to be imminent. Imminent. <laughs> a lot of uh, overworked Twitter jokes about Biden imminent running in 2020 <laughs> later we got news that biden had informed possible veeps like gretchen whitmer that they wouldn't be vice president so we still didn't know it was harris but we knew who it wasn't going to be mm. and we're sort of whittling it down uh not just reporters david but liberals on twitter were affirming during this period that they would support whomever the nominee was so this is from the palmer report everyone on joe biden's vp list is very good to great Therefore, I will immediately get behind the running mate, no matter who she is. So it's sort of a loyalty pledge. I don't even need to know the name. I'm going to commit right now to mm -hmm. supporting whomever <laughs> Joe Biden selects as his running mate. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it's, it's sad to say, but on Twitter, I think that's the pledge is more necessary there than just about anywhere else. I mean, we're not we're not that far removed from a world in which that would go without saying for anyone on the liberal side of the spectrum, right? That you would support the, the democratic nominee for, for president and, uh, and whoever else is on their ticket. Yeah. A lot of people said that out loud during the primaries. I just liked that there was some, for some reason, everyone needed to be on the record mm -hmm. before the nominee. Like, I just, I want to go ahead and get it out there that I will support whomever Joe Biden comes up with. Uh, yeah. One person said, if Biden's VP is an inanimate carbon rod, I will do everything I can to make sure they get elected. In rod we trust, yeah. You know? <laughs> there you go. Then Biden announces the pick, and on Wednesday afternoon, he comes out in Wilmington and gives a speech, and then Kamala Harris gives a speech. First of all, I thought both of those were absolute knockout speeches. What did mm -hmm. you think? I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, it... I feel like I say something to this effect over and over again, um, but it really made you remember uh, why people were clamoring for Kamala Harris to run for president, right? I mean, it, it, and not even like immediately before the primary, like several years ago, Kam like, you know, like first exposure to Kamala Harris where you everyone was just sort of applauding, you know, I mean, it, it's, she was, she's just fantastic. And it seems like 
right off the bat. What a great pick. Absolutely. And it was so funny because we had this huge discussion uh, back when the Chris Dodd thing was happening. Is, is Kamala too ambitious, right? Everybody's getting mad at why are female politicians judged on these terms that male politicians are never judged on? Mm-hmm. And then it was hilarious because as soon as Harris's speech ended, I, I turned over to see it. And everybody was like, oh, tonally, she was just great. Her tone was just perfect. I was like, wasn't that what we were talking about before the selection? But OK, anyway, <laughs> other interesting part of that was Joe Biden just decided to give a full blown campaign speech mm-hmm. that went way beyond just introducing Harris. I was sitting there watching it with my wife, and I'm like, is he just giving his acceptance speech at the DNC right now? Because he unloaded all this stuff onto Trump and nicely sort of weaved Harris into it. But did you think, is that Biden just thinking, look, I've got everybody's attention right Mm -hmm. now. I don't know when I'm going to have it again. Here we go. I've got everybody's attention and without the normal sort of stages of the cross of the of the primary season, you don't know when all the, the cable network cameras are going to be trained on you, right? I mean, you, you don't even know if you'll have, I mean, if, if every time you give a speech, you're sort of sitting on the same office backdrop from your home, would CNN tune in even if it was labeled as like your big foreign policy speech or you know what? I mean, it, it, you just don't know when you're going to have that kind of that kind of uh, 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 permeation. And and so, yeah, he just, he went all in. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of times when we're all going to be paying attention to Joe Biden between now and November. We're going to be paying attention probably at the democratic convention, the quote unquote convention, but have we really all paid attention to Joe Biden since the end of the primaries? I mean, might it be one more time that we're all, sort of locked in besides the debates that were all locked in on him giving a set piece speech. I mean, debates. Um, (laughs) I think it's a conversation for another day. Uh, Yeah, I I, I think so. And listen, it's working out for him, right? I mean, he's, he's doing really well uh, for having been, uh, you know, ignored or at least in comparison to previous cycles, this was a big opportunity for him, but also, you know, maybe it was an opportunity to kind of get this out of the way and not have to, you know, be waving his arms for our attention as the months go on as much. Somebody on CNN made a really interesting point where they said both neither Harris nor Biden are great arena speakers in terms of like using the crowd and surfing off the crowd. So you put him in this empty gym in Delaware, which would normally be a pretty terrible place to make a really big political speech. And it turns out it accentuated their strengths. Uh, it's maybe in Harris, maybe especially so like if you just were sort of bought into them without the interference of the crowd. And, and that may have been actually the best thing that happened to them. So, yeah, it's, they're, they're not, they're not the, uh, they're not exactly queen out there, you know, getting the whole arena stomping their feet. They're, in, <laughs> they're, they're more of the, we only found out what Clapton could really do when he unplugged. Right. Yeah. Joe Biden is definitely not a, uh, <laughs> an arena band. Then we, David, we got to the final part of the media cycle here, which is the Trump conservative Fox News response to the Harris election. The first problem was that conservatives could not correctly pronounce her name. Tuesday night, Tucker Carlson comes on Fox and goes on and on about Kamala Harris. Not Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris. Listen to what happens when Richard Goodstein, a former Bill Clinton advisor, steps in to offer an assist. Service is running mate. Sincere question. Um, 
Tucker, can I just say one quick thing? Because this is of something course. that will serve you and your fellow um, hosts on Fox. Her name is pronounced comma like the punctuation mark la, Kamala. Okay? okay. We, uh, seriously, I've heard every sort Un of bastardization okay. so what? That. That's how it is, uh, Kamala. Uh, okay. okay. Well, but that, I think it's out of respect uh, for somebody who's going to be on the national ticket. Pronouncing her name right is actually okay. not, it's kind of a So I'm disrespecting her by mispronouncing her name unintentionally. So it begins. You're not allowed to criticize Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris or whatever Kamala. No, because no, no, Kamala, Kamala Harris. No, whatever. Okay, look, I. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's it. Every time that someone corrects me for the rest of my life, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to respond with, so, so it begins. <laughs> <laughs> the liberal takeover of my life is marching. Is it full march? Yeah, exactly. Tucker's rage there is just incredible. So you're saying that I'm I'm supposed to pronounce her name correctly? Are you just saying it's like this? I can be attacked? It's like, yes, that's probably the minimum bar. Look, I know Kamala Harris. It can be a tough name to pronounce. We and we, you and I have both mispronounced it on this podcast. At least I have. I'll speak for myself. But she has been a giant public figure in America for a year now. And my rule is if you're going to be snide about someone and you're going to go full high dudgeon, you probably should have the facts right and you probably should pronounce her name correctly. It usually just goes better hand in hand when you're trying to make a big point. Yeah. The other thing, David, watching them uh, sort of flail around, which is funny, was to try to find a talking point about Kamala Harris. Because as you and I have discussed here, Trump's go-to bit for the last couple of weeks has been Joe Biden is going to hand the streets over to Antifa. Our cities right. will be lawless if Joe Biden is elected president. So then Kamala Harris, former attorney general of California, gets picked. And all of a sudden, Trump is in this really weird position because one of the criticisms about Harris in the Democratic primary was Kamala is a cop, right? Kamala is too pro-law and order. She doesn't fit the moment. Well, that's exactly what Trump has been saying that the country needs. So all of a sudden, Trump found himself in this very weird box. And as some people were documenting, they were actually putting out both talking points that Kamala had this record as attorney general that needed to be studied more and that Kamala was too liberal and trying to make those two arguments at the same time. Yeah, even if the evidence is contradictory. Uh, you got to enter everything in evidence, I guess, early on so you can go back and cite it later. Um, I don't think they know what to say. I mean, I don't I thought I, I tuned into Fox right after the announcement and uh, to see how they were uh, what they were saying. And it it seemed like they were just sort of flailing for an angle. You know, I mean, it, it, it was in some ways a refreshing sort of commentary. I think Jesse Waters said uh -oh. that. Trump would uh, being given that Trump has no problem with people calling him sexist or racist. It, I'm sure this, this might be a good pick for him, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it, they were, they were just trying to figure out the angle and, and obviously it wasn't, it wasn't pre-programmed like it would be with some of these other choices. In the case of the Trump campaign, Harris was a super obvious choice. So how do yeah. you not have this ready to go? Well, yeah, I mean, it's tough. I think it's, it's, um, it's probably especially tough when you're, you know, spending campaign energy towards dog whistle racism and all that kind of stuff. And when you actually, you know, are confronted with a black candidate uh, and you have to 
choose whether or not to just be racist or to leave all that aside. I, I don't really, I mean, it's, it is shocking. It is shocking that they don't really have an angle with her, but I mean, maybe the problem is what you were getting at that her, that the, that the, the, the most potent attack, at least in terms of splitting off votes, might be that Kamala is a cop, you know, but that doesn't fit at all with it, with this wacko narrative that Trump is driving home about this being the leftiest lefty ticket of all time. Yeah, he loves to do that, right? He loves to take the left's complaint with a Democrat and turn it into his complaint with a Democrat. Hillary is a warmonger, being the classic example. I, uh, uh, Hillary's a warmonger. I'm the one who's not going to be a warmonger. But the fact that you've talked about Portland and talked about, you know, federal presence in all these cities so much really complicates it. Ben Jacobs had a great tweet. He says the central dilemma of the GOP with Kamala Harris right now is that they don't know whether to paint her as the face of Black Lives Matter or the face of Blue Lives Matter. But that was really nicely put. Mm -hmm. And then in the cringy part, here's conservative talker Mark Levin. This is on Tuesday night, David, hours after the historic selection of Harris. Listen to the first words out of his mouth. Levin TV. Hello, America. I'm Mark Levin, and this is Levin TV. Well, I want to take a look at Kamala Harris with you. Excuse me. Kamala Harris right now. Um, I'm going to tell you this. Uh, I'm not going to be a stickler about this, uh, but the media will insist on it. Kamala Harris is not an African-American. She is Indian and Jamaican. Jamaica is part of the Caribbean. India is out there near China. I only point that out uh, because um, uh, if you dare raise that, you're attacked. But the truth is she's not. And so I just wanted to make that clear. Her ancestry does not go back to American slavery. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, her ancestry doesn't go back to slavery at all. So I, I want to point that out because um, of, of the bizarre nature of our politics today about who is what and so forth and so on. Normally, I wouldn't care. I still don't care. Uh, but I keep hearing people say she would be the first African-American vice president. No, if she's even elected, God forbid, or nominated, then elected, she's still not the first African-American vice president. Just want to point that out. She'd be the first vice president of color, but not African-American. Do you think he really <laughs> doesn't care as he protests there about these not, issues? Yeah. Yeah, not, not, not that I care. Uh, not, I'm saying this explicitly because I don't care. Please uh, listen to me care about it and then move on as if I hadn't said anything. It's about four levels of shittiness there, but I just want to point out in case anyone missed it, where he's trying to describe the position of India in the globe. And he says it's over there near China, just to bring up China for some reason. Like, okay, thanks, dude. That is genuinely horrible. And by the way, can I just get out of the way? I just interject really quickly because he did specifically say Kamala Harris before he corrected himself and kudos to him for correcting. This is the same week that uh, professional wrestler, uh, uh, villain of our childhoods, Kamala, uh, real name James uh, Sugar Bear Harris died uh kamala james harris rest in peace there's a great article by oliver lee bateman about him on the ringer i talked about it on my other show the masked man show one would be forgiven for conflating those two uh in the world of twitter hashtags um but i think now is uh, you know a, 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 a more important time than ever to sort of get that pronunciation straight yeah and i'm, I'm not sure mark levin was i was actually toggling between those two uh those two trending topics, but uh, we'll see. I did like this uh, good tweet from Jim Garrity of National Review, who's been very critical of Harris's positions. 
uh, though he did tweet this. You know, whatever else you think of Kamala Harris, it's pretty amazing and awesome that immigrants can come to the U.S., meet, marry, have a child, and their daughter can grow up to be D.A., state attorney general, U.S. senator, and on a presidential ticket. Amen, Amen. to that. Yeah. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. I'm not sure we've ever had more consensus with the overworked Twitter joke than we had this week. Everyone said these three, they are the ones, uh, press box. You, you don't need to sift through them this week. So here you go, David. First up at a concert in Sturgis, South Dakota, the front man of the band smash mouth, Steve Harwell told the crowd, we're all here together tonight. Fuck that COVID shit. <laughs> it was an overworked Twitter joke to write. He ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. Oh, man. Thanks to the ringers, Matt James, Mark Eisenstein, Joe Walski, Papa Dab Schneider, and like 9,000 other people. And then there's the Kamala jokes. The runner up previewing the vice presidential debate we'll have this fall. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, is Mike Pence allowed to stand on the stage alone with a woman? Oh, my God. Thanks to Matt Zeitlin, Alex Quigley, and many others. And finally, a joke made by about 90,000 people on the Internet. It was an overworked Twitter joke. As soon as the Harris decision came down to write, congrats, Maya Rudolph, on getting the SNL gig back. <laughs> if at this late date you're still interested in Saturday Night Live political parodies, God bless you and congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. In the notebook dump, David, let us do some listener mail. We do this every Thursday. Uh, we were talking earlier in the week about cussing during NBA games, how that was getting in the television broadcast. And we got to talking about the bad edits TV makes of movies. Mm -hmm. Well, Eric Raskin and Al American sent some classics, which we unfortunately cannot play because I cannot say the original version of this on, on the podcast. Here's one we can play. This is from Samuel L. Jackson's classic movie, Snakes on a Plane. Listen to oh how the censors handle that tricky word, motherfucking. We got to clear the snakes out of the cockpit. Yeah, yeah, clear the snakes out of the cockpit. Yeah. Enough is enough. I have had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. Everybody strap in. I'm about to open some freaking windows. This Monday to Friday plane. <laughs> that plane does not fly on weekends with the snakes on it. That's fantastic. Thanks to Eric and Al for that. This is from Lakito. Thoughts, opinions on the overworked tweet construction blank colon, a story in X number of parts, followed by an assortment of various headlines. It seems like I've been seeing it everywhere lately. Is it the modern day equivalent of Hemingway's six word story? Love the show. <laughs> so there's the story in so many parts. And then there's also the headline, headline, one week later, headline that completely contradicts the previous headline. Yeah. Or tweet that contradicts the previous tweet. Yes. Am I, am I doing this right? You and I don't do this stuff. <laughs> Never. No, we never sign off on that. No, we got a lot of very positive feedback, by the way, on the levels, uh, the way journalists tweet about stories the other day, because we were talking about, um, you know, quite the read. Oh, yeah. When you tweet quite the read, you just mean a slightly more pointed than normal newspaper story. 
Mm-hmm. Somebody who shall remain nameless sent me a DM and he said, the problem is, as a journalist, you want to tweet on behalf of your journalistic teammates. Yeah. But you don't always really have time to read the story. Yes. Or engage with the story. So you go to the Mad Libs, right? Mm-hmm. Great piece by so-and-so. Yeah. This piece by so-and-so. I think the lowest form of Twitter praise is fun piece by David Shoemaker. <laughs> That's the faintest praise. Yeah, because it, 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 in a way, it means like, I don't think this story is that great. Maybe the idea is kind of cool, but the story isn't that great. And I, it, real, what it means is I'm totally unthreatened by the story as a reporter. My favorite, my favorite one is, uh, is a way that you can not make it seem like you've read a piece, read a piece uh, without ever having to profess that you've read a piece. And also just to sort of, you know, really, really see, I guess, yeah, you seem all, you seem like you're deeply invested in it is just a pull a quote from the piece. Mm-hmm. So you just have like some little reportage they've done, like, you know, just like a, a first, like a, an, an original quote by Dabo Sweeney or whatever. And then just the, and then straight from that to the link. <laughs> it's a great one. Just like, oh, I read the piece well enough to pull out th- thoroughly enough to pull out this quote. You can attribute it to Brian Curtis, whoever, and then just the link. But you don't have to say, I read this, or this is good, or fun, or anything. And it's, sometimes it's the wrong quote. Yeah. You know, if you actually do read the piece, you're like, why'd they pick that? It's only yeah. because it was in, like, the first three paragraphs. It was a pull quote, yeah. It was, it was there waiting to be taken. How much do you trust the tweet, always read David Shoemaker? Oh, well, if it's, it's often I'm, unclear I'm whether they read with, the piece. I, I usually do. I mean, depending on who says it, obviously. I, I think I would actually take... Uh, I would I would probably take it somewhat seriously, or that would at least you know affect my reading of it. But um, but yeah, you can never. I, no one no one's ever totally straightforward, are they? So yeah, yeah. I don't know. What do you? think? I mean, if somebody says always read Brian Curtis, like I'm I'm completely flattered. I'm also mm-hmm. not totally sure that they read this piece in question. Right? It's more <laughs> yeah. of a it's more of a command to someone else. Always yeah. read Brian Curtis because I don't have time to or really any desire. <laughs> this is from Burner McBurnerson. Thank you, Burner, for your contribution to this podcast. How should the press balance the desire for ratings on election night with the expectations that we likely won't know the winner for some time? Will they be partially accountable for the fatigue that will set in? It's Ooh. a great question, right? Because well, I mean, I actually think that this question is, I think this question is pretty straightforward. I mean, I think they're going to go all in on on. Well, I think the practical answer is that they're all going to go on all in on election night, like it's the biggest election ever, and like it'll be fully decided by 11 p.m. Eastern time. That won't be true, but I think they're going to be geared up for it. I think that it, getting at a kind of more interesting question, which is or, I, or concept, which is that they're kind of every station is going to have to be geared up for like five different things, right? They're going to mm-hmm. have to be fully staffed for a, you know grand slam coronation result and they're going to have to be fully staffed for you know this is going to go to the courts and let's explain that to people uh they're going to have to be fully staffed for um you know many different eventualities here and 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 specifically depending on i mean if trump were to lose depending largely on his reaction right um even if even if it was a, a clear victory um and, and as not to jinx it, uh, I'm sure that there would be, uh, you know, if Trump wins, uh, even in moderately decisive fashion, fashion but, but loses the popular vote, vote, I feel like that's going to be received a little bit differently this year than it was four years ago. So, I mean, I th- there have to be, every station is going to have to have a lot of different, a lot of different game plans um, for whatever happens at night. 
it's like back in 2000, Tim Russert had a whiteboard and that was a big mm-hmm. deal. And what you're saying is that we need like five whiteboards this time. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I think what's going to happen is the, the straight talking types, the Jake Tappers, basically everybody on MSNBC is going to spend the month before the election saying over and over again, we may not know the results on election night, or we likely mm-hmm. won't know the results. But as soon as election night happens, the cable news machinery is going to kick in. And that red breaking news thing that's always on CNN and and the sort of MSNBC music, and it will just seem like we will just forget about all that. At least in the production of election night, that is all going to be completely forgotten. And it's going to be like the action is happening right here, folks. This is a Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, I think that just to reiterate what I said, I think that, I mean, I mean, I think in not literally, but almost literally, you're going to see like MSNBC is going to have, you know, John Meacham behind. They're going to have like three curtains on the stage, right? And depending on what happens or depending on where we are in the night, they'll pull back a curtain. Like John Meacham will be behind one. Kornacki will be behind the other one if it's just like a vote counting thing. And they'll have, you My know, Jonathan Turley or whoever behind number one. three to, to, to examine like what the legal with the Supreme Court battle will look like. I mean, it's there's a lot of different iterations of how this thing could go. And I think that it's going to be a. It'll be an interesting roster construction conversation, to say the least. This is fantastic. No, no, you just you just figured it out. Like Jake Tapper or Brian Williams has like three buttons in front of him. Yeah. And he just smashes a button and Jeffrey Tubin is revealed as being behind the door. Yeah. Oh, it's it's John Meacham. Here we go. Is HW Brands back here somewhere? Can we get another? <laughs> what does this election remind us of? I, I love that. I'm absolutely in. This is from John Paul Roman. What happens to all the backup articles announcing the other contenders as the VP selection? Would you pay money to see what the New York Times would have written if Rice or Warren were the VP pick? How many articles do they have ready to publish? Funny question, because these are treated like the T-shirt that says San Francisco 49ers 2020 Super Bowl champions that we always hear about. I got to say this. I would pay no money because those articles would be really boring (laughs) and would have the the article is just going to say, you know, going against conventional wisdom. Karen Bass became Joe Biden's running mate on Tuesday. I mean, that's literally what the article would say. It's only the next wave of articles that are actually then people rushing to the phones to try to get details from the VP search Mm -hmm. that are interesting. So, yes, that is that is it is the equivalent of the T-shirt of the 49ers winning the Super Bowl. But I don't think its interest is, goes far beyond that. <laughs> Trey Sheehan wants us to comment on Deion Sanders leaving NFL Network for Barstool. Is it RIP for Linear Networks, he asks. Um, yeah. David is Deion, Deion Sanders is Deion Sanders is, I mean, listen, was probably the biggest football playing star of our youth. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them sure doesn't necessarily have that same level of kind of prestige in his post-playing career uh i think it would have to be somebody other than than uh deon sanders for me to you know put a fork in the idea of like linear <laughs> networks um it's a big move it's a, it's a uh it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out but it is you know it, it says it definitely says something about deon sanders and says something about barstool and says something about the sort of leveling of the playing field between uh linear and well more amorphous uh network networks or network like entities but i don't know exactly what it says just yet yeah to me to me it's most interesting about just the structure of the media universe we live in now it's also interesting in this way because 
if Deion Sanders or when Deion Sanders leaves NFL Network, they're not going to le- lose a single viewer because of that. I just can't imagine anybody's going to be like, you know what? I just love Deion Sanders' analysis. Sure. So I'm going to stop watching. And I'd say that about almost anybody on any of their shows. Mm-hmm. But he's worth more to Barstool. Oh, yeah. Because it legitimizes Barstool in more of a way. He can also just be brought on to say, like, funny things that don't that he probably couldn't have said in the confines of a basic game day NFL analysis show. So, you know, he can just be used completely differently. And I think that's part of the question here beyond Barstool, which is just like, you know, oh, man. But it's just there are a lot of guys on those shows, I think, who are legitimately really interesting and funny. And the pregame studio show basically squeezes the least interesting and least funny stuff out of them. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like, I would just, I'm also just interested to see anybody out of the confines of that particular vehicle, whether Dion is the guy or not. I'm not sure. This is from Joe Walski. Is there a more common answer to the question? Tell me something we don't know about Perrin celebrity that is notoriously serious, boring, quiet, et cetera, then he actually has a great sense of humor. <laughs> I can confirm oh, this. Man. I feel like whenever I've reported on somebody, particularly somebody who has passed away uh, at some time in the past, and you say, what was he like? What was she like? The first thing people say is he had a great sense of humor. Yeah. And he gave me the least funny person in the universe. Mm-hmm. It's just the go like that's how we think of people. It's essentially it means that like they're genial, or they yeah. were nice. They had a great sense of humor, and I think that's weirdly become a synonym. And when you're really close to somebody, presumably even a pair of supremely unfunny people would engage in some humorous interplay, would laugh at each other, or whatever. You're going to their loved ones; they probably do think there's a good sense of humor there. Yeah. If I ever see that quoted in a story about somebody, I immediately know they didn't get any material. Like if you say somebody had a great sense of humor, I know they didn't get because I've been there. And great sense of humor is like the, the the bottom of the barrel, baby. And you want to just move on at that point. <laughs> this is from listener Tom Rootsy, David. I love this. Uh, Australian TV presenter Paul Dowsley uh, is working there in Melbourne. They have a stiff curfew right now in the Victoria State because of the coronavirus. And in this clip, Dowsley is reporting on a man who broke curfew to buy cigarettes. Okay. You literally not allowed to leave your house in Melbourne after a certain time. Man okay. goes out to buy cigarettes. Listen to the pun that Paul Dowsley attempts on the air. The man caught here who just wanted a packet of cigarettes. You can imagine now he has a pack of cigarette regrets. <laughs> <laughs> Cigar regrets. He uh, Dowsley posted that himself with a little music there at the end. All right, David. So we had a day on politics Twitter earlier this week. We also had a day on college football Twitter. And let me tell you, days on college football Twitter are a million times crazier than any day on politics Twitter. Here's the ringers. Roger Sherman with some postgame analysis. We bring in Roger Sherman, staff writer extraordinaire, bachelor watcher, and for our purposes here, expert on college football Twitter, which just enjoyed a two- or three-day run that needs to be savored. Roger, how are you? 
You'd actually be really surprised how much overlap there is between college football and The Bachelor. Like 90% of the people who win The Bachelor and The Bachelorette are former college football players. Now, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Jordan Rogers won. Uh-huh. Yeah. Bachelor Twitter and college football Twitter. Keep that thought in mind for later in this, uh, for later in this segment. So Sunday night, we start to hear very strong vibes of something we've been hearing for a while, which is that college football might not play this fall, especially the Pac-12 and Big Ten who've already canceled their fall seasons. This all comes to a head online Sunday night. Uh, I want you to take us through some of the players who are involved because it's almost like every stakeholder showed up at the same time on the internet pleading their case. First up, Trevor Lawrence, Clemson quarterback, national champion, probably going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft next year if we have an NFL draft. What did Trevor Lawrence bring to the party? Yeah. So uh, starting, first of all, starting last week, all of the college football conferences released their schedules for the 2020 season. And then four days later, some of them started to cancel their schedules. So this is all really well thought out and well put together and makes a lot of sense. Sunday night, Trevor Lawrence um, tweeted something that seems basic. He just wrote, we want to play. He was one of many players who was hashtagging, we want to play. This is the best player in the sport, the probable number one pick in the NFL draft, won the national championship as a freshman, and just saying he'd like to play football this year. And it's um, it, it's it's this type of thing that seems so basic, but got twisted in all these directions because the people who were saying that there shouldn't be a football season this year were very tied up in the idea that it was unfair for these unpaid athletes to play a season at the behest of these colleges to make money for the colleges. And the idea that the players themselves wanted to play suddenly became very powerful to everyone who had been pushing for a season. It's like, why are it's like the players voices themselves are the ones that are most in favor of playing. And that really caught a headwind on Sunday as players from around the country kept saying, we want to play, we want to play, we want to play. And the funny twist was then a few hours later, Trevor Lawrence, along with a lot of the other most important players in the sport uh, from conferences and teams around the country said that, you know, he'd like to play, but, and <laughs> And then there was a list of things like anybody who wants to opt out for COVID-19 should be able to and keep their scholarship. And, you know, we'd like to form a players association, which is something college football players have never had because they're not considered employees. And every time they try, they are shut down by the colleges. So all of a sudden, this thing that had started out as like the voice of the players turned into oh, no, you're giving too much of a voice for the players. Gotcha. And everyone's words are being twisted in so many ways. The people who started out trying to back the players were told they were hypocrites for not listening when the players wanted to play. The people who uh, got excited about the We Want to Play movement then looked like hypocrites when they were like, hey, we're not fans of unionizing. (laughs) Everybody, every sentence in this college football moment has like four different meanings and everyone is using everything to back up their prior beliefs and wants and desires, even though it's a very nuanced, very strange situation. 
Yeah. So just like there's all these crosswinds here. So you got this, let's say quite a lot of college football writers saying, look, you cannot force these kids who have almost no labor rights onto the field this fall. Then you have yeah. a college football player, the most famous college football player, come forward and say, no, 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 I want to play. To which a secondary force of writers and observers say, see, the kids want to play. You, you, you elite writers are, are just completely, you know, off base here. To which then the players say, and oh, yeah, we're going to form this union-like thing, or that's part of our demands if, we, if we're going to play. Which then leaves the anti-writer pro player faction grasping for straws i i think i summarized that uh maybe incorrectly but somewhere somewhere in there it's it's roughly accurate and it's all tough because like so many people are being told that the things they very clearly want aren't you know uh it's like i am a college football writer this is my favorite sport it's the thing i love the most i will routinely watch 14 hours of college football on a saturday every saturday and I do that even though I say I'm a college football writer, but my bosses are never like, can you write off the midnight Hawaii game? I still watch it anyway because I like watching Hawaii play football at midnight. Um, and it just then the past few months, you know, I've been told by a lot of people that I don't want there to be a college football season and that I'm rooting for the sports demise. Direct quote from Danny Cannell about me, uh, who's I think on ESPN. Danny Cannell. Yeah, he's a serious guy. This is Danny Cannell, former college quarterback, now a college football opiner. And he's been saying, so this, this is another, we should just, we should just unpack this for people. This is another group that shows up on Twitter Sunday night and also into Monday is a group of analysts, mostly, I think, who are essentially saying the media doesn't want there to be college football or the media is taking a lot of glee in the fact that college conferences are canceling their season. And meanwhile, the media that I saw were all devastated because this thing that we love and that our jobs are based off of is disappearing in front of us. And even though you've had six months to prep for the idea that there isn't going to be football this year, it really hit home on Sunday that this you know, or it really hit home on Tuesday when the cancellations actually ended up happening that like this part of my life that feels like a like a North Star is just gone this year. So we got the players on Twitter. We got the media on Twitter. We've got the anti-media media on Twitter. And then at some point into this hurricane, Jim Harbaugh, head coach, of the University of Michigan shows up and he had a fact sheet. What What was going on with that? Um, he was just trying to say that, you know, we're doing well. Only 11 of our players have <laughs> gotten the coronavirus, you know, only mm -hmm. 11 out of 105 is, and like, this is the, a lot of people were arguing that college football teams, college football, uh, campuses and the team environment is actually the safest place for these players to do. Uh, Dabo Sweeney, who's the head coach of Clemson, the team that won the national championship two years ago, uh, said that Without a doubt, college campuses are the safest places for college football players to be. Uh, just in the sake of fact-checking, 37 players on Clemson tested positive for COVID-19, and one of them now has difficulty breathing and is going to sit out the season if there is a season. So I find it hard to believe that it's the safest place for them to be. And somebody like Dabo Swinney, his conference is still playing football. 
So we can consider him to be kind of a proponent of what his conference is doing, at least at this moment. But Jim Harbaugh, there's an extra layer there, right? Because the Big Ten at this point is leaning toward it and then now has, in fact, canceled football. But he is saying, as a Big Ten coach, I do not believe the decision that my conference is making. Am I getting that right? Yes. Uh, several, several people were not excited about the decisions that were being made by the conferences um, and just openly rebelling against their conferences and saying, this is a bad idea and we don't like it, which isn't, isn't something you, you normally see. Uh, a lot of people were just like not, not on board with the decisions that were being made by people due to medical advice. So we got players, we got media, we got coaches. And then at some point, Donald Trump inevitably shows up at mm. this party. Yes. Uh, Donald Trump uh, hooked onto the, we want to play hashtag. We want to play thing. He was like, the players want to play. They should be allowed to play. I'm always a little bit, my personal thing about Donald Trump and college football. If you allow me to go on a mini riff here, please. Donald Trump did not like college football before he was president of the United States. <laughs> he has a long history with pro football, a long history with major league baseball. Then he becomes president and realizes a lot of the people who voted for him like college football. And the thing that always stands out to me is that in 2018, he flew down to Atlanta for the national championship game, which I went to. And, uh, and he, he left at halftime. And then the second half of that game is like the best second half of college football I've ever seen. Alabama comes back from a huge deficit and wins. And I just don't trust the college football opinions of anybody who left the Tua Tagovailoa national championship game at <laughs> halftime. Don't talk to me about college football if you went to the one of the best games I've ever seen and were too bored of it to stay around for the second half. Uh, but yeah, he's very he's been very adamant that like college football is this super important sport and the players want to play. And some of the players who were involved with the statement that came out on Sunday were like, huh, it's weird. Like the president just retweeted us and I don't think he knows that he just endorsed a player's union. Right. It was funny because he had two tweets and I forget who I'm stealing this from, but the first one was really obviously ghostwritten because it was just mm -hmm. a very sort of generic statement with the hashtag we want to play. And then the second one, which followed like within a day was like, play the college football season exclamation point. It's it's become hooked into this political thing, not least of all because the conferences that have canceled, the conference that canceled the Big Ten has Ohio State. They have the University of Wisconsin. They have the University of Michigan and Michigan State. And it's there was an article that came out today written by a Trump campaign spokesperson that the cancellation of the college football season was going to swing those states in favor of Donald Trump because they see that the libs are just out to get him and that they canceled the season to own him and that you can't trust the elite libs and the scientists and the media and that everyone's going to realize this is a plot to take him down and that that's going to be a big deal in those states where, but it, uh, it just seems like um, we, you know, we'd be playing football if uh, there was no unchecked pandemic. Right. That being seemingly the bigger, <laughs> the bigger which issue seems like a thing, Which seems like a thing that, you know, the first time this sport has ever been canceled is happening now. Uh, 
because of events in our country. And uh, that's that seems like it'll be this the stronger message, in my opinion. One thing I wanted you to 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 help me sort of explain is that I remember joining my first like rivals message board probably early aughts. Mm-hmm. One of the really exciting things about that, and by the way, this is for the alma mater of both me and Erica Cervantes, University of Texas. And what was so exciting was on a rivals message board, you felt partly in reality and partly just in pure fantasy that what you were posting on the message board was actually affecting events. Like it was either, you know, you were either showing displeasure of a coach to help him get fired or a coordinator to help him get fired, or you were just writing and writing and somehow your voice was affecting things. To me, the couple of days of college football Twitter this week was like the ultimate expression of that, where you had everybody getting on saying like, I can save the season. I can sink the season. I can affect the season somehow by just having a couple of tweets. Did you feel that that sensation at all? That's especially true because you'll sometimes like find out that someone who's anonymously posting on like the Texags message board is like the secretary of defense or something like that. (laughs) I I don't, I forget which important government official had a Texags account. It was incredible. But that was, that was a thing a few years ago. Um, Yeah. It, the, the message boards are where (laughs) like, I feel like you, you level up to become a, a, a internet commenter and other places that's like the battleground where the people are are chosen to later become <laughs> to later become more uh more effective commentators at other places but yeah it does seem like this war is being war is a bit of a strong word but it does seem like this battle to make this season happen is happening online with tweets between all of the major players in it you know, like the the players are coming out and saying things online, thinking that they can push things in their direction. Um, and it seems as if it kind of worked because like the Big 12, the conference in which Texas plays, you know, announced yesterday they're going to play. And they said the reason we did it is because the players made clear that they want to play. Is that actually why they did it? No, they did it because they they want all the money from the football season. But it feels like the on the the swell of tweets from these players made it a little bit more socially acceptable for them to say this is justified by the players themselves when we can all see very plainly that it's justified by the hundred million plus dollar television contracts that will get to stay in shape if they are if they play the season totally and at least it it at least kicked the decision a couple of days or a week down the road, you know, so they didn't cancel it this week in the case of the Big 12. There's a good, really good piece I read a couple of weeks ago by John Talty, who writes for AL.com, mm-hmm. and he described the last couple of months of college football media as an information war, <laughs> not quite the Alex Jones level, but this this idea where like athletic directors and college coaches knew there was an incredibly large chance that this season wasn't going to be played. But at mm-hmm. the same time, they had this enormous interest, and you've written about this a little bit, in keeping up appearances online to limit bad news and at least sort of be publicly optimistic. Am I, am I, am I putting that correctly so that there wouldn't – because they are – the media cannot cancel the college football season. That's, that's bullshit. But these people are highly lobbyable, and they are subject to political pressures. 
Yes. And the thing about this sport is that no one is in charge. You know, baseball <laughs> has a commissioner. The NBA yes. has a commissioner. A country has a president. A, a company has a CEO. The college football is so disjointed that um, it's hypothetically a part of the NCAA, but the NCAA doesn't technically cover the Division I national championship. It's its own entity. Each conference is making its own decision. Each conference is made up of schools, which are making their own decision. So, you know, your like you said, your ability to influence what's happening, you could reach someone who actually does have a role in this. And I feel like that's why it is sort of this, you know, back and forth online lobbying thing, because when there's no one that's really there, there is no one that was able to step in and say, we're going forward this season or we're not. It's all being made by smaller, more inf influenceable. What's the word for influenceable? Influential. It's not influential. Yeah. Help we'll me out. Go with influenceable. <laughs> it's a coinage here on the press. Influenceable box. people. Uh, and I, I just wanted to clarify I, uh, that um, the Texas A&M user I was going to, I was referring to was the former secretary of defense, Robert Gates. Robert he, Gates he, was the message. Robert Gates was the, the Texas A&M. <laughs> so you could go onto a college football message board and be talking to the secretary of defense. Yeah. Which is power of a sort, not just influencing maybe the, uh, the course of the college football season, but you know, our policy somewhere in the world. I want to ask you one more thing, Roger, before I let you go, you mentioned how terrible this is for the media if college football in whole or in part goes down, if that happened to the NFL or MLB, I think that would, we could quickly make a list of all the writers and broadcasters affected. Give me a sense of who's affected by a college football season going down, which media members. It's, it's a thing that's so tough to define because in so many cases, the entities that run the sport and directly profit from it also have their own media setups. The Pac-12 canceled its season on Tuesday, and I think Wednesday you started seeing layoffs at the Pac-12 Networks, which is a television company that exists to broadcast Pac-12 games. Um, ESPN is one of the primary companies that benefits off of this. CBS, Fox make a lot of, you know, not only broadcast the games, but in some cases own some of the games. ESPN owns a lot of bowl games. Um and the finances of the sport are so intertwined there. If there's no college football season, if there's none of that revenue, the media that prop that exists only to support these, you know, conferences, these individual conferences of the sport at large, you know, I don't know what they're going to do. There's, 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 it's not like they could just switch into another sport because there are none currently happening at their colleges and their universities and, it's unclear when they will again. So th there is this whole media ecosystem where the stakeholders in the sport are also, also own their own media that makes it a little bit stranger and more intertwined and really subverts the idea that the media were rooting for this to fail in the first place. It's not just that media, it's not just that media, you know, can't necessarily bring down a college football season. It's, I don't, in so many places, they're financially motivated to keep it going. 
and I, I'm sure you've seen this in other sports, but th- that that's the thing that really like eats at me when people say like the media is obviously already against this. It's like, not only would we all personally just enjoy watching college football, a lot of people really depend on this happening and they're, they're, they're not going to have it happen and it's going to be bad. Absolutely. All right. Roger Sherman, you can read his analysis of an occasional participation in college football Twitter. Roger, thank you so much for joining us. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Yeah. Monday's headline about racial disparities at ski resorts was the unbearable whiteness of skiing. Today's pun comes from my inbox. It's a press release, David, announcing a new slate of shows that will run on the ESPN Plus streaming app. I'm going to give you the description of one show. Quote, Mike Greenberg brings fans the stories behind sports' most iconic bets. Stories behind sports' most iconic bets. You have to tell me the name of this new ESPN Plus show. The show or the article? The the name of the show. What was ESPN Plus's strained pun show title? (sighs) Greeny um wager yeah, you're, gonna, uh, you're definitely going to want to go in the uh gambling side mm-hmm. bet uh that's your pun word or or form of that betting betting the uh, betting the line betting betting lines betting uh be- what if Sorry. i told you the word was betor b e t t o r oh, no. Uh, better, better, better off dead, better late than never, <laughs> better, better, uh, better, You're gone. Um, You're going. better things, better, a um, little better, straighter, better, better, better days is the answer. Oh God. Better days. My God. <laughs> New show on ESPN plus. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis research by Chris Almeida production magic by Erica Cervantes. Join us next week on our Monday to Friday media (laughs) podcast for more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.